Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Gang, the updated dietary guidelines for Americans dropped over the winter break. Lee, did we know this was coming? Well, we knew it was coming, but we didn't know exactly when it was going to come out. um, And we'll talk a little more about that later. Okay, let's get into the good, the meh, and the what in the world with our resident nutrition scientist, Dr. Lee Frame. All right, I'm excited about this. So how do they come up with these guidelines? So that's a really good question. I think most people don't have any idea where these guidelines come from or what the process looks like. And actually, this is the first dietary guidelines to be released since that process has been updated. Um, so that's another point. So I'll just give you a brief overview, and we can talk a little bit about, about that update process, too, because I think that might help people understand um how these dietary guidelines formed and maybe why these are actually hopefully a better dietary guideline than previous versions. So we start off by getting a group of experts together and they're called the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. Uh, It was about 20 nutrition experts and they work through the science. They do things like systematic reviews. They're really looking at all the literature and trying to bring everything together. And then they do presentations based on different parts of it. And they, they have, these are public presentations and they have the public give comments. And a lot of times you'll have other nutrition scientists who are going in and giving comments. For instance, I attended a few of these and provided some comments. And they work to incorporate all those comments um, and the science together to develop what we call the science scientific report. Now, that scientific report was released back in July of 2020. So since July, we've kind of known this was coming, but you don't know exactly when they're going to be released, Uh, especially with COVID. We had no idea when things were going to be coming through. (laughs) Um, So they, they submit this report to HHS, the Health and Human Services, and the USDA, United States uh, Drug and Agriculture and um, they, they take that information and they look at the old dietary guidelines and they work to update them. So it's not like we don't throw away the old dietary guidelines and start over again. It's, it's working to update them. And that whole process actually takes three different steps, including a review by federal and external experts. So it's not something that's really simple or easy or fast or anybody's taking it lightly. So they are really trying to interpret the science and get them into the new guidelines. Um, those guidelines, as you mentioned, were released in December. So December 29th, they actually came out. Um, And then once those guidelines are released, then HHS takes that information and they put together resources for health professionals to share with patients. And those include things like fact sheets, and that should be released any minute now. Um, they, They have on their website, they'll be released in 2021, but hopefully soon. And then that will really give us what we need to actually talk to healthcare consumers because I don't know if you looked at them, but the dietary guidelines are very long and it's really kind of hard to get through. And it's not something the average person is going to sit down and read. Yes. So that's kind of the process to getting to to implementing it in, in terms of healthcare. Now, how were these updated? So there was some concerns in the past, and you may or may not have heard about this, that the dietary guidelines were not as science-based as they should be for many reasons, uh, not least among them the potential issues of, of lobbyists, of different organizations that have a vested interest in what the guidelines say. 
And so Congress uh, asked the National Academies, the National Academies of Science, Medicine, Engineering, to put together a task force to review the process. And they did that, and they came up with a plan to improve the integrity of the process um, and to develop credibility and trustworthy guidelines. And they have five different principles that were implemented as part of this plan. The first one is to enhance transparency. And that really, I have seen that in the process. They made almost everything public and sending out multiple notices saying, this is what we're doing, this is how it's being done. So that has really improved. The second one is to promote diversity of expertise and experience. Um, and, you know, that's sort of actually kind of an objective thing. What are you looking for in terms of diversity? Is it uh, the person's background? Is it the type of science they have? So that's a little bit harder to judge, but it does seem that they had a, a more diverse group of experts this year or over the last few years because it's not a one-year process. The third one is to support a deliberative process. So it's not, you know we just make this rule and nobody talks about it and that's the end of it. So now it's more of a back and forth and there's more public comment involved. And um, something we'll talk about later is they actually also have to explain when they don't include something in the guidelines that was included in the scientific report. So you can see that's a really big change that could affect how things are implemented. And Along those lines, we're also, the fourth principle is to manage biases and conflict of interest. Um, so as we mentioned, things like companies lobbying, if you have a bunch of experts on this group that say are on the boards of companies like Nestle or Coca-Cola, uh, they could have a vested interest and maybe uh, stretch the, the science in a direction that it's not really going, uh, make things look differently. So they want to make sure that that is being managed. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do in the world of nutrition because unfortunately, it's not a well-funded research venture. Yeah. So in order to get funding, you have to work with companies many times. Um, Lee, at, just a ahead. quick interruption. Do you, can you give us an example of like how much money goes into nutrition research versus another type of research? Oh, that's a great question. I wish I could think of some figures off the top of my head. Um, but I do know that only a tenth of the research um, at NIH that is could be related to diet. So, you know, diabetes research, cancer research, anything that has some sort of dietary component, only a tenth of it is actually nutrition related. Um, so Which is nothing. That's, yeah, exactly. That's absolutely nothing. And beyond the NIH, there aren't a lot of opportunities for nutrition research funding, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, and it's caused us to have to be a little bit more resourceful, which is why you have, you know, the Nestle Foundation, which gives a lot of funding to nutrition research. But obviously, there is some sort of bias in where that money is going, is that they're funding things that potentially could benefit uh, the Nestle Corporation because that's where the money line. comes yeah. from. Exactly. And, you know, you understand that they're a business. That's that's their job. But that's part of the problem with nutrition research is we really could use some unbiased funding or at least ways to mitigate that bias. And that's what the the dietary guidelines tried to do this year is make mm -hmm. everything really open. You know, if someone had a potential conflict of interest, they had to declare it. Um, and that was declared anytime they made any comments related to topics or if they, um, you know, if they, they did make a comment, hopefully everyone realized what, where they were coming from. So, you know, the conflicts are still there, but taking them into account when you're having those conversations. Great. So what's new with the updated guidelines? So there's a whole bunch of things that are new with updated guidelines. Uh, what, okay, let me put it this way. What is of most interest to you? 
There we go. Okay. So this actually is what is probably of the most interest to everyone. And these are the things that people have been talking about, um, is there was two topics that were included in the scientific report that were not fully integrated into the dietary guidelines. They either omitted part of them or um, they, they sort of changed the way they dealt with them. And, and that was related to added sugars and alcoholic beverages. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen headlines to that effect. Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit about the facts because I think when you understand it, it maybe is a little bit less controversial than you know the headlines might make make you believe. Um, but that being said, there's definitely room for debate. So I'm going to start with alcoholic beverages. Um, what the committee asked for was that we advise adults not to begin drinking alcohol or purposely continue to drink because they think it will make them healthier. Uh, they asked to add clarity to the limits. Um, saying that this applies to days when alcohol is consumed, which obviously means that then there are days when alcohol is not consumed. Uh, whereas when, as they're currently written, it just says, you know, one drink per day. Does that mean you have to drink one drink every day? It, it's kind of unclear. So they wanted that to be clarified. And then they also wanted to state that drinking less is generally better for health um, than drinking more at all levels of consumption. And again, it's just like a clarifying thing. They wanted to make it clear that, you know, you don't have to drink one drink every day. That's not required for it to be healthy. So how did that get translated? What was actually included? Um, this one, I think, actually was pretty well integrated into the guidelines. And what they've done is they've added advice that individuals not start drinking and they actually say that drinking less is better for health than drinking more. So I think that's pretty good integration. Then they also add a clarification that on days that you drink is what that limit is for. They actually say on days when alcohol is consumed. So that, again, is making it clear that you don't have to drink every single day. Nor should you. <laughs> no, no, not so <laughs> should you. Exactly. <laughs> The second portion of this, and this is the part what maybe I think is a little bit more controversial, is that the committee recommended for those who drink alcohol that the limits be one drink per day for both men and women. Currently, that's the limit for women, but for men, it's two drinks. So why wasn't that included? Um, this is actually due to the state of the evidence. Uh, the, that one drink limit for men is coming from emerging evidence related to cancer and cardiovascular disease. And the way the dietary guidelines are designed is they have to meet, quote, a preponderance of evidence at the time. Now, that's not a very clear definition. What does preponderance of evidence exactly mean? We don't know. But we do know that emerging evidence does not meet that limit. So because of that, they felt that more research was needed, and so they remained with the old recommendation of two drinks per day for men. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, that sort of makes sense. That's how research works. We can't move ahead of the research. We have to stick with what we currently know. So I think when you dive down to that one, it's actually not that controversial. And you, we understand where we're going. And, and when they come out with the new guidelines in 2025, we may have more research and be able to more clearly delineate whether that one drink per day limit should be bo both men and women or if, if we stick with the two drinks for men. So as a breast cancer survivor, I'm going to suggest to anybody with cancer in their family, stick to the one drink limit. Yeah, that, and that's a great point. Um, going back to how the guidelines are designed is that originally they were designed for healthy people, right? So they didn't take disease states into account. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of the first... And I can tell you a little more about that, but this is one of the first that's gone into disease states. And they want to include 
all people um, rather than just healthy people, because exactly what you're saying, there's there's a greater risk for those of us who have some sort of other risk factor, be that family history or, you know, obesity or some other risk factor, diabetes, that means that maybe we need to cut back on that. So they're trying to take those into account with these guidelines and have really more of a general healthy eating pattern that anyone could adopt as opposed to what a healthy individual is okay consuming. This echoes what what you often say, um, you know, one size does not fit all when it comes to your diet. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that I love about the new guidelines is they're really emphasizing that. Um, they've just said that it, that these are guidelines, which is exactly what they've always been, but, you know, they're emphasizing that, that it's just a guide for you to use to personalize for your own diet. Um, and they actually even have handouts now talking about how you can help customize the guidelines to your diet, which is kind of revolutionary when you think about it. Now, I read somewhere that for the first time, the guidelines include information for, is it infants and children? Yes, that is something that is new. So it's it's a new approach they're taking to lifespan. Um, it used to only be for healthy adults. So they're adding that. And that actually also ties into that other piece, going back to what else is controversial, is the added sugars. Because that's one of the areas uh, where the committee really had some strong recommendations was for children and added sugar. And it partially made it into the guidelines. So let me tell you what's in the guidelines, and then we can talk about what the committee recommended and how that's different. Okay, go. So the guidelines say, limiting added sugars to less than 10% of calories per day for ages two and older, and to avoid added sugars for infants and toddlers, which in layman's terms means not to consume. So children two years, two years and younger shouldn't consume any added sugar at all in their diet. Mm -hmm. So fruit, totally cool. But chocolate milk, probably not the way to go. And that's a very or, different... Or, or sugared or sugar water. Oh, yes. Soda, all of those things that we think are totally fine for kids to have. They're saying no, not under two years old. Great. Right. That's big. That's huge. We, we can get excited about that portion. But what the committee recommended, and it's slightly different, is they recommended limiting added sugars to less than 6% uh, and they used a, an updated food pattern modeling to get that number. So it's not like something they just pulled out of their hat. Mm -hmm. um, but they did put in the caveat that this would depend on dietary choices made by the individual. So it's not like a, a hard and fast number. So that's the one issue is the percentage. Um, and the other issue is that they actually thought that um, the age limit should be even stricter. And you should have another level for um just around two years old. So that was not included either. But what's really interesting is when you look at the previous science and the recommendations of previous years, they did calculations showing that that 10% that was that's recommended is based on caloric requirements for someone who needs more than 3,000 calories per day. You may not know, but the, the average calorie and what the nutrition facts labels you is, is 2,000 calories. So this is one half bigger than what we're seeing on the nutrition facts label. And that doesn't really make sense to me or probably a lot of people because you would mm -hmm. think you would use whatever's on the nutrition facts label as your guide, but that's not being used here. 
So what would it be if we used 2,000 calories? It would be around 7%, which is much closer to the 6% that the committee is recommending. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to add further confusion to this, the dietary <laughs> guidelines say that most Americans um, have about 8% calories or less available for added sugars in their diet. So they're contradicting their own number, um, <laughs> which is, is fun. Um, so basically, there's, there's no clear agreement on these numbers, but what is clear is that 10% seems high um, based on the actual science that we know, based on models yeah. and analysis from the groups that are putting these dietary guidelines together. So I'm not entirely sure why we stuck with the 10% and we didn't at least move down to eight or seven mm-hmm. um, when, the, when the committee recommended six. And that's where people, I think, are really getting upset because it doesn't make sense, right? If there's logic to it, we can get behind it. We understand the research isn't there. But here we have a better understanding, and it seems almost like it was just, I don't know, not listened to. Yeah. Especially at a time when, you know, childhood obesity is skyrocketing. Um, right. Obesity in, in adults and diabetes, what they're calling diabetes, which is diabetes and obesity, mm-hmm. um, in, in across all populations, um, is very concerning. Yeah, exactly, and that's something that has also changed. And, and they've highlighted three major updates that they've made to the guidelines in terms of their approach. And one is that the, the, they're no longer just focusing on healthy individuals. And their rationale for that is that now that more than half of adults have one or more diet-related chronic disease, that's a pretty big number. Half of all Americans need to change their diet to prevent well, not even prevent, right? They already have it. They already have a disease. Now, if we mm-hmm. added prevention into that number, it could be 75, 80% of all Americans need to change their diet so that they don't have a chronic disease. Yeah. So what is, are there, is, is there anything else that strikes you as unusual or something that you'd like to change in the updated guide. Let me say that again, because I was burping. (laughs) (laughs) So Lee, what would you change in the updated guidelines besides what we were just talking about concerning sugar? So I I actually think that the guidelines have done a really good job of trying to change with the times. Uh, We already talked about how they're they're talking about needs to be personalized. They're talking Mm -hmm. more about a dietary pattern approach, which is something we haven't discussed really yet, is they're not focusing on you know, they always got so into individual nutrients previously, like you need this much calcium, you need this much vitamin D. And while those are important things to know, that's not how people eat, right? We eat foods, not nutrients. Uh And foods are complex matrices of nutrients and non-nutritive bioactive components. So we know about nutrients, but these other elements, you've probably heard of polyphenols, um, bring health benefits. And it's hard to take those into account when you're just looking at a single nutrient saying, oh, you need to get this much um, vitamin A from beta carotene. You're not thinking about the other elements of the food and how that interacts to form a diet. So I think they're becoming more realistic. And hopefully that makes them more useful because people can understand that, oh, a Mediterranean diet, for instance, that type of dietary pattern could be healthful, whereas um, the carnivore diet is probably not healthful because you aren't eating any plants at all. Um, And one of the things that really stuck out to me as different that they said in direct quote is that these foods and beverages act synergistically to affect health 
which is something we've been saying in integrative medicine for a very long time. So to see mm-hmm. it in a governmental guideline, my head almost exploded. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something I'm excited about. And I think that um, because of that type of approach, these guidelines are not as reductionist or mechanistic as they have been in the past. And I think it makes it easier for people to apply to their various different lifestyles or the various different disease states they're trying to treat. Or um, one of the things they're even emphasizing is economic issues, right? So, you know, previously they recommended meat as a protein source. Well, that could be expensive. And so Uh if you can't afford it, a plant-based protein is just as good. You know, uh, amino acids are amino acids as long as you're getting enough of each one. And that's not something that historically has been has been done in the guidelines. So I think they're they're moving in the right direction. They're getting there. Is everything perfect? Absolutely not. <laughs> but it's a vast improvement. And I hope that, you know, we've made it this far for the 2020-25 version, that the 2025-2030 version is going to be really good. All right. There you go, friends. Everything uh, that's good to know about the updated dietary guidelines for Americans. Okay. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Friends, this is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.